Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our episode today begins with a stroll down memory lane. Are we going back to our first podcast together, Jennifer? No, we're going back to the year 1983. Ah, we're going to talk about when I learned to ride a bike. Well, not exactly. Here, why don't I set the stage with a little period-specific music? So as you can hear, we're back in the 80s, and a high school student named Jenny Berkshire is working on an essay about the Great Gatsby. And in her essay, the symbol of the Green Lantern figures very prominently. Do you know why? Uh, You know, I would have been about three years old at this time, and so uh, the Green Lantern would have uh, only meant comic books to me at the time. I was very a very precocious comic book reader. Well, Jenny, like almost all of the students in her high school English class, put great emphasis on the Green Lantern because it was mentioned in the Cliff Notes. <laughs> this is something that I would become familiar with about ten years later. Uh, it, the best way to uh, to figure out what the symbols and uh, metaphors are in any classic work of literature being taught in America's schools. Well, when Jenny went to White Oaks Mall to the Hallmark store to pick up her cliff notes for The Great Gatsby, she had no idea that she was participating in a great American tradition, which would be the search for shortcuts in education. And this would be uh, what Bob Hempel would refer to as a shorter and easier cut rather than the uh, shorter and harder where you're simply doing more in less time because I'm guessing that young Jenny was not speed reading through The Great Gatsby and doing cliff notes on top of that. You're, you're smiling the smile of the guilty right now. <laughs> Nobody can see this, but I can. (laughs) That is true. And as Jack just indicated, our guest today is Bob Hample. He's the author of Fast and Curious, A History of Shortcuts in American Education. And he'll be joining us in a short minute. But Jack, when I tell people that my co-host for this podcast is an education historian, I typically get a response like this. That was a yawn. Oh, I thought maybe it was the faraway sound of uh, joy and uh, wonderment. (laughs) Well, this uh, book by Bob Hample, I think, makes the best case that I've ever seen that education history turns out to be absolutely essential in understanding what makes this country tick. Yeah, Bob's an education historian at the University of Delaware, and... Uh, He's done some very cool work over the years in terms of looking at the roots and origins of what may seem entirely normal, Um, that this in fact is one of the core purposes of history is to help us understand the water that we swim in and to understand that things were not always this way and needn't have turned out this way. Well, what we're going to learn is that the tradition of cashing in on the aspirations of Americans and their desire to to get a credential and to learn something 
with perhaps slightly less effort than it actually takes, goes back really far. In fact, what's so amazing about Bob's book is that you won't believe that he's talking about fraud and and uh, and sort of advertising, as we've talked about before, that dates back a century plus. You'll think he's talking about today. Yeah, without mentioning badges, or uh, I'm not sure that we'll talk about online learning. Um, Bob uh, can talk the the same critique that people are making currently and draw on examples that, as you said, are in many cases a century old, uh, that we've been here before in many senses. Well, we've got Bob Hample standing by, but first, how about just a little more of that great music from the 80s? Dr. Hample, welcome to Have You Heard. Your book, Fast and Curious, chronicles the long search for shortcuts in American education and the rich tradition of cashing in on that search. It's a fast and fascinating read, and it really gets to something essential about America, how often it is that our aspirational natures and our hucksterous natures intersect. Several people have, have, have told me that. They said that shortcuts are uniquely American, and if I had another 10 years, I'd study them around the world. But we, we, we do seem to see education as an investment where we want a good deal. And if we can get it for less effort and time, well, that's, that's great. I want to start where the book starts, with correspondence schools. By the 1920s, half a million students were signing up each year. And just like we see today, these schools really took off during a time of great technological change. I told Jack at the start of the show that I think your book really makes the best case I've seen for why education history is so important. Basically, people who don't know their education history are condemned to repeat it, although perhaps make a little more money the second time around. That's a great point. You know, with distance education today, technology is obviously central. The fact that you can turn on your laptop and start studying. Well, in the late 19th century, with better and better postal service, say free delivery in rural areas, people suddenly said, we have access now through the mail to what before was out of reach. Of course, a well-known example, this is the Sears Roebuck catalog that sold everything under the sun. Well, correspondence schools made the same pitch that if you're willing to spend a few dollars, you can get lessons in the mail. And they proved enormously popular at a time when high school and college enrollments were rising. So for people who, for whatever reason, had dropped out, they now sense that they could get back in, that if others were going to college, well, maybe they couldn't quit their job to study, but they could sign up for some correspondence courses, and often it was in hopes of finding a white-collar job after working as a blue-collar worker for many years. So it really played on people's ambition. And most of the correspondence school courses were not about the liberal arts or great books, but were about career mobility, about getting ahead, which, of course, traditional education 
also emphasized, but the correspondence schools did it uh, more incessantly. And in, in fact, often they misrepresented the great things that could happen, but they knew that people wanted to get their hopes up and dream of a better life after taking a few correspondence courses. Well, you you include some skeptical voices in your account. You know, the uh, woman who wonders, can I really learn to play the piano by mail? Will my personality <laughs> really become more magnetic? Mm. And because and, what's so interesting is, you know, as this as technology changes and people's aspirations begin to grow, that's where the real hucksterism comes in. And the parallels with today, I thought were just were just astounding. It's so true that that frequently there was that fine line between enthusiasm for education and out-and-out misrepresentation, if not fraud. And at the end of the chapter, I mentioned briefly Trump University and the same promises that anyone who's ambitious can become a success very quickly. Um, you know, there was a side of the correspondence schools that was amazingly democratic that, that, that claimed that all you have to show is some motivation and ambition and remarkable things can happen. And, you know, Trump called it innocent exaggeration, but, you know, it often crossed the line into being um, misleading and distorting what it, what it took to be successful. One of the things that we've talked about before on the show is how completely unregulated uh, educational mm. advertising is. That whereas you are limited in what you can say uh, about, let's say, pharmaceuticals uh, or uh, you know other things that you're advertising uh, as products for sale, with education you can make all sorts of uh, ludicrous promises, and it seems that. You know, there there's a kind of story here about uh, what happens to education when it is left to the free market, and we see the kinds of promises that are made uh, and how clearly they diverge from the product that is delivered, and the promises become more and more oriented around people's station in life, uh, their uh, you know their social standing. Uh, their economic productivity, um, that the, these fundamentals of their lives are going to be completely transformed. And uh, while you have the, the rewards being ramped up higher and higher, the work that is required uh, is diminished more and more in these pitches, um, you know that all you need to do is, uh, you know, take a six-week correspondence course, and you know you'll double your pay. And I'm wondering if you see uh, any story here about the need for regulation and for public governance in education, given these pressures that lead to a kind of distorting of what many people think the mission of education is. What often happened was the government would only step in after there had been flagrant abuses. For example, the Federal Trade Commission tried hard to sanction fraudulent claims and misleading advertisements, but it usually was too little, too late, and many firms said, well, we'll just keep doing it, and if we get a slap on the wrist later, well, that's price we're willing to pay. 
sometimes the most effective criticism came not from the government, but from individuals. When, say, the famous journalist Jessica Midford wrote a scathing expose of the famous writer's school, and if it hadn't been for that article, they might have continued year after year with their hyperbolic advertisements and overinflated claims. One of the other parallels that's so striking is that the what we find out through the work of Jessica Mitford and others is that the students were ending up saddled with big debt because very few of them finished. And I thought that you know that that was really interesting. And if you think about the debate that's happening right now about um, the DeVos administration and the role that the feds will or will not play as as far as providing oversight to the for-profit college sector and the kinds of claims they can make, um, you know, basically they're they're saying too bad, so sad. Exactly. Most of the correspondence schools had their students sign a legally binding contract to pay the entire tuition, even if they dropped out early on. Some students were able to get out of those contracts, but often. They had borrowed the tuition from a bank, and the banks often insisted that they repay. So there is a very strong parallel to uh, student loans today and how difficult it is to um, escape years and years of repayment for something you barely used. Bob, one of the things that you talk about in the book is uh, the fact that People see education oftentimes as something that does not necessarily possess intrinsic value, right? That, as you just said, it's an investment. And so they shop around for the best value. Uh, they're doing a kind of cost benefit analysis. So I'm wondering if you can talk through it all uh, how you think that this has shaped the K 12 system or higher education. You've got a lot of cases of shortcuts, but I'm wondering about just sort of macro. Uh, trends in terms of the evolution of American education? How has, how has this shopping for value had an impact? Well, certainly the importance of credentials over the last century has, has increased. That for various jobs, as we all know, you, you absolutely must have a certain diploma. And that matters more than how you got it or how much you remember of what you learned So for some people, it's the outcome that matters far more than the process. I think those of us in academia think the process should be critical, that it should be intrinsically satisfying. But for many people, it's not. It's a means to an end, and that's what they want. Hearing you talk about that reminds me of your section on Cliff Notes, and uh, and in in my notes, in my show notes here, I've just got a question: What do Cliff Notes teach us about America? And then I, you know, I framed it in a bunch of different ways. But I kind of like that that open ended question. I'm wondering if you know you'd be willing to to take it on its face. You know, what what do Cliff Notes teach us about America? Well, it's a part of the book I I enjoyed very much, and I was able to talk with the daughter and son in law of the founder of Cliff Notes, who incidentally did not think that they should be a shortcut. He saw them as a study aid over and above reading the original works. And I think in his mind, 
it helped students understand how to write and talk about great literature. I mean, it's one thing to read, say, Macbeth, but it's another thing to know how to write a term paper about Macbeth. And he thought he was giving students some of those skills. Well, we all know that a lot of students just decided not to read Macbeth and said, I'm just going to read the cliff notes, especially if my teacher is giving a short answer, multiple choice exam. But I think for many students, there was a sense that cliff notes were their ally, that this is somebody who understood what it meant to be a busy student who was struggling with literature. And over time, the cliff notes became a little more playful, a little wittier. This is true of spark notes and the most recent version of them called schmoop. Um, this is sense that education doesn't have to be an ordeal. And I think that's what many of the shortcutters tried to emphasize, that not only can education be the pursuit of a useful credential, but there are ways to make it a little more enjoyable rather than just a, a chore that they had to do. We're talking to Bob Hampel, the author of Fast and Curious, A History of Shortcuts in American Education. Desperate as I am to pivot away from the topic of cliff notes and how students did or did not use them, I want to take us back to the future. There are many parallels between the rise of the correspondence school industry and today's career education business. This whole idea that workers are constantly having to re-credential themselves, a process that they also have to pay for. Take us back to the height of what you call postal education. The largest schools, such as the International Correspondence School based in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which at its peak signed up 100,000 people a year, offered dozens of courses to prepare you for very specific trades and vocations. And they ranged all the way from white-collar careers such as accounting, which until the 1920s, did not require uh, college as a prerequisite to taking a state licensing exam. Um, Lots and lots of specific uh, trades that were expanding, say, if you wanted to learn how to be a construction manager, if you wanted to learn drafting, In other words, it was offering people some career mobility in the sectors of the economy that were expanding rapidly, and those sold much better than courses in, say, music, although those were popular, how to play an instrument, um, bodybuilding. I mean, Charles Atlas made a fortune with a correspondence school uh, on physical fitness, but but specific careers that was that was the biggest appeal. Uh, and again, this is often before there were thorough state licensing requirements for various occupations and careers. That that really did restrict the market for some of the correspondence schools. Uh, Another example would be law. At one time, there were several dozen schools that promised to get you ready for the state bar exam. But then by the 1920s and 1930s, 
most states had added the requirement that you had gone to law school, and so it became harder and then impossible to take the bar exam after finishing a correspondence course. One of the things that comes to mind as you're talking about people passing the bar exam, for instance, or uh, you know, thinking about cliff notes uh, and the connection there between the rise of cliff notes and the kinds of multiple choice tests that teachers were giving that cliff notes were really good at preparing you for. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is you know the the challenge of assessment, uh, where you know because our ability to assess students uh, is pretty limited in many cases, um, or our willingness to assess them is pretty limited. Uh, and uh, you know our tests tend to focus on things other than what they actually know and can do, that there are all of these ingenious ways uh, to, to sidestep actual learning in terms of passing whatever the relevant test is. Correspondent schools themselves struggled with this question of how do we assess what our students can do, but they also knew that there was a market for helping students get ready to take tests. It's surprising in a way that correspondence schools did not try hard to coach students for the SAT and ACT. Uh, that was one of their sort of markets that they, they did not try to exploit. But often they said, you know, the real talent is inside yourself, and we're just going to help you develop your innate ability that you don't need to go back for two or four years, or you don't need to take a test. And, you know, often they had this very ambivalent view of traditional education, that it was a waste of time, it was too expensive, that students spent too much time in sports and partying. But they also had a certain respect for education, that... After all, they knew that many of their students regretted the fact that they had dropped out. And so they, uh, they, were, they were trying hard to sort of play both sides of that, be a little critical of traditional education, including exams, but also respectful toward, toward education. For example, some correspondence schools would issue uh, diplomas, little pins, uh, yearbooks even, I think that people who think competency-based education is a trendy new concept will also be very surprised to learn that this is also a very old idea. And you even had the same sort of debate about what people need to learn and what competency actually means, especially in a time of rapid technological change. In one chapter, I talk about the University of Chicago, which stands out because it's one of the few places that tried hard to say that you can earn a diploma, your bachelor's degree, if you pass a series of tests. We don't care about credit hours. You don't have to go to class. You just have to do well on a series of tests. And it lasted for about 20 years. And even there, it took a tremendous amount of effort to construct these exams. And it also required the endorsement of the president, Robert Hutchins. And after he left... The exams didn't survive very long. The competency-based education sounds so attractive, but to figure out what type of exam is fair and what level of proficiency you should expect is pretty tough. One of the things that stands out to me in the book is 
that it really is an illustration of how hard learning is and how intense a process education is. Um, that you know, efforts like the University of Chicago's competency-based uh, diploma program uh, actually uh, demanded that students learn a great deal. They were still just being measured by a test, but you know, they had to work really hard in order to do that. As opposed to, uh, you know. Cliff Notes succeeded because they actually allowed you, whether they were designed to do this or not, they allowed you to pass the test without reading the book. Mm-hmm. Well, you're absolutely right, Jack. The second half of the book I call Faster and Harder. In other words, you can save time, but you have to exert yourself. Uh, for example, it's often possible to get your medical degree, your MD, in six years. You do a combined BAMD but you're going to be racing the whole time. Uh, Cornell at one time tried a six-year BA PhD degree, uh, incredibly strenuous. Um, Harvard for a long time thought it would make sense for all of its undergraduates to finish in three years. Uh, Or another example, if you want to learn shorthand, a pretty useful skill for anyone who has to take a lot of notes, You've got to devote some serious time and energy to learning it first in order to get the long-term payoff. So many of those shortcuts were legitimate. They weren't bogus. They weren't over-advertised. But a lot of people said, I don't want to sprint. I'd rather walk. I'm comfortable with the regular pace of education. Four years in college is just fine, even if I'd save money by getting through in three So those options have been out there for a long time, but it's surprising that more people haven't made use of them. Your um, book ends with a chapter on brain power, and I'm sure you're aware that our Secretary of Education is a big believer in brain power. In fact, she's a major investor in a in a chain of brain retraining centers. Yes, yes, NeuroCore, I believe they're called. Yes, she's very keen on that. And I came across a number of examples of brain science, all these great claims now that with the right pills and food and drink that um, we're going to be able to do all sorts of things with what's inside our head. Um, I think, you know, in a country that's so sold on pharmaceutical solutions to our problems that in a way this is understandable But you're also getting a lot of hype. I came across some amazing ads that uh, had, you know, pictures of MRI, brain scans, and it's it's as if that's all they needed to convince people to send their money in right away. Well, what's so interesting about it is that there's, if you look at the the chain that she's such an investor in, there's no peer-reviewed research at all, but what there is is a very clear payment plan. I bet. There was another one that was fined $2 million several years ago, um, claiming that they could train your mind, uh, that you would, you would do certain um, uh, tasks that would supposedly sharpen your concentration and speed. They called it brain training. And yeah, you, you can do better on those tasks, but there was no evidence that it transferred to other tasks. And again, the hype, the overselling, people hoping that, you know, gosh, I I really want this to work, and then realizing that it often 
it really doesn't do it. That was education historian Bob Hampel. He's the author of Fast and Curious, a history of shortcuts in American education, and a professor in the School of Education at the University of Delaware. And I'll be right back with another education historian to wrap things up. So Jack, I just I just love that book and I really hope that that people read it because it's so relevant to understanding some of the very current debates we're having. I think people will definitely read it because uh, there's a very illustrious education historian who blurbed it uh, on the back. And so I think people will flip over and see the back cover and then just snatch it up and pay whatever they have to for it. Is there such a thing as an illustrious education historian? Touche. So uh, I think that uh, this is such an interesting story about the market that you know, we, we learn quite a bit about ourselves by looking at uh, these efforts to create educational shortcuts over the years. But I think what we really learn about here is what happens when you turn education over to the free market. Because, of course, there are two kinds of impulses we have when we are educating ourselves in this country. One is the citizen's impulse, where we are educating ourselves to actually learn something um, and to become contributing members to our communities as well as to you know, fulfill our own promise. But then we're also uh, educating ourselves as consumers, right? that we are consuming education because there is return on investment because the credentials that we can acquire will allow us to be more marketable uh, either socially or economically. And that when we take away the democratically controlled function of education and we allow it to be a service that is provided by free market third-party providers, uh, what ends up happening is that they cater to our lowest common denominator, that what we end up striving for is the easily purchased credential that may be costly in terms of dollars, uh, but not in terms of time. That return on investment really ends up being something that dumbs down education and allows us to get ahead without necessarily learning anything. One of the topics that Hampel discusses in the book that we didn't get to today is this whole idea of rating teachers. Turns out to have a very long backstory and it really fits into what you were just talking about regarding sort of free marketization of of education. And I thought that in our capitulation to the free market, we could discuss this topic for our extended play uh, episode that we offer to our Patreon subscribers. This is like when I search for something online and it shows me like the first couple lines and I excitedly click on it and it says, you know, you must be a subscriber to get beyond this. And I get really upset when that happens. I clearly need to not get upset in such cases since I'm a part of the problem now. You are part of the problem. And if you are not already one of our Patreon subscribers, all you have to do is go to patreon.com and search for have you heard and a small donation will give you access to our extended play episodes and help us keep the podcast going. And for those of you who believe in the sharing economy, 
Uh, you can share the podcast with friends and neighbors, and you can also send your love to us by giving us a rating, uh, preferably a five-star rating, wherever you are getting your podcasts. And what if people want to give you a chili pepper rating like they have with Rate My Professor? Then they have that option for me. They will have to create a profile for you. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 